It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So Charles Dickens famously begins his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Consider now this historical fact. Two processions entered Jerusalem on that spring day just before Passover in the year 30 CE. The first procession was that of a rabbi from Nazareth, a poet prophet named Jesus, who for three years had been proclaiming the kingdom of God along the highways and the byways of rural Galilee. The second procession was that of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, the emperor-appointed prefect who for three years now had been overseeing all of Judea. That first procession entered Jerusalem that day from the east, and its main figure, Jesus, rode upon a donkey, and he wore the clothes of a peasant farmer. Meanwhile, that second procession entered Jerusalem from the west, and it carried all the pomp and circumstance of a Roman triumph, chariots and war horses, swords and shields, bugles and banners. The message being proclaimed by that first procession was this, this man, Jesus, is the Son of God, Lord of the earth, bringer of peace to the nations. Meanwhile, engraved upon the shields in that second procession were these words, in the name of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God, Lord of the earth, bringer of peace to the nations. This is a true story. Two processions, two similar claims, two different leaders, two very different visions of reality. This is how the story of the first Palm Sunday begins. You with me still? Okay, good. So now a little more context. Some 60 years before this, when the Roman Emperor Octavian defeated the forces of Mark Antony in the Battle of Actium, Octavian swiftly moved to consolidate power for himself, effectively marking the end of the Roman Republic and ushering in the new age of the Roman Empire. And as history buffs know, this was the decisive moment in Roman history. This was the moment when Rome ceded its authority to an emperor king. And here is how the Roman poet Ovid, writing at the time, described his new emperor king, and I quote, You, Augustus, have always been the father of the world. The name of the creator in heaven is your name on earth. You are the son of God. And so here then is the important point for us today, and with it my reason for opening with all of this historical context. 
By the time Jesus came along, the one who was seated on the Roman throne, that is, the sitting Roman emperor, was universally considered to be, quote, the Son of God. And here, meanwhile, is a list of other epithets by which Roman citizens of the time referred to the Roman emperor. Lord of the earth, Redeemer, Savior, Prince of Peace. Now, do any of these titles sound familiar to you? Of course they do. And so in order for us to understand what was really going on on that first Palm Sunday, when that Nazarene named Jesus rode into Jerusalem upon a donkey, and people began cheering for him and calling him names such as Lord and Savior and Son of God, in order for us to understand what was really going on in this moment, we must first understand that for people to be publicly proclaiming these things of Jesus was for them to be publicly denying them of Caesar. You follow that? Well, so now then a very important question. What was the difference in these two processions. What was being represented by these two ostensible saviors, by these two supposed sons of God? In other words, what did each of these men stand for? Well, first, let's take Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire over which he claimed to lord, the kingdom of Rome, if you will. Essentially, the way the Roman Empire worked was this. Roman might, so the Romans believed, was underwritten by divine power. That is to say, the reason Rome was so powerful, the Romans believed, was because the gods had destined them to be. Had destined them to be the rulers of the world. And thus their divinely given might, they believed, not only gave them license to, but gave them the imperative to wage battle on foreign territories, subdue them, and then occupy them. And then by having done so, usher in a sort of universal peace. They called it the Pax Romana the peace of Rome. And what this peace of Rome boiled down to was this, peace through might and domination. You get it? So that's what that first procession represented, a kingdom of peace secured by might and domination. So what then about that other procession? What then about that procession that came in that day from the east? What then about that procession where the so-called Son of God rode in on a donkey 
And were the people cheering for him instead of brandishing swords, waved palm fronds? What, what then was that Savior's kingdom all about? Well, simply put, it was about this. The meek shall inherit the earth. Or put more simply still, it was about peace secured through humility. Two processions. One about peace secured through might. The other about peace secured through humility. As Jesus drew near and saw Jerusalem, Mark writes, he began to weep over it, saying, If only you had recognized the things that really make for peace. Then Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him, asking them to secure for him a donkey to enter Jerusalem upon. And this seems to us today to be a very odd thing for him to ask, a very odd thing for him to do. Oh, but we can be certain that those surrounding him back then understood it very well. For those surrounding him back then would have readily understood this to be a symbolic action, one connecting his mission and thus himself to the words of the prophet Zechariah from centuries earlier. Look, Zechariah had then written, remarking on the difference between Judah's coming leader and all the warrior kings who now surrounded and oppressed her. Look, Zechariah had written, quote, Your king, meaning your real king, is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And he will put an end to the chariot and the war horse, and he will bring peace to the world. End quote. In other words, Zechariah was saying, these other mighty conquerors on their mighty steeds, with their mighty chariots, these won't bring peace to the world, even though they claim they will. However, this humble, self-denying leader will bring peace. That's what the prophet Zechariah had said six centuries earlier. And so now, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, this was the message that Jesus was communicating. Here I am, he was saying. Here I am, that humble leader who will, through humility, bring peace to the world. And so let us picture him now. Here he is riding into Jerusalem that day upon a donkey. And as he does, those who apprehend his message, those who recognize the symbolism, begin to laud him. And they begin tossing out palm fronds before him. And they shout, Hosanna! And they begin screaming, Blessed is the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And for the briefest of moments in Mark's gospel, all seems well and good. 
for the briefest of moments, all seems to be headed in the right direction. For the briefest of moments, it appears humility will triumph over might. And that peace will be secured through righteousness and not through brute force. But just then, Mark moves the camera from the streets of Jerusalem to the central offices of the temple system. Where now the leaders are meeting to discuss this man, Jesus, and to discuss these public demonstrations of his. Oh, you better believe that the religious elite had understood the symbolism of what Jesus had just done. You better believe they knew their Zechariah. And you better also believe that they knew all about this Jesus and about his rabble-rousing ministry these past three years. And thus you better believe they already knew what a threat he was to their way of life. But what's more, and what's so much more even than that, and that ain't nothing, you better believe they knew what it would mean if more and more Judeans began to shout hosannas and publicly called Jesus rather than Caesar, the Son of God. You see, the whole reason Pontius Pilate was even in Judea at this time, the only reason his procession had even entered Jerusalem that day, was because each year at Passover, the sitting Roman governor who lived 90 miles from Jerusalem on the Judean coast, see, he didn't live there, each year at Passover, the sitting Roman governor, in this case Pontius Pilate, would come to the capital so as simply by force of his presence to discourage any ideas of popular revolt. you follow that? The idea was that the presence of the prefect would deter the large crowd of Judeans from getting any wild ideas while they were gathered here. You know, wild ideas like calling someone other than Caesar, Lord, and Savior. You know, wild ideas like, say, calling someone other than Caesar, the Son of God. So back now to the scene. There they are now, the leaders of the temple system, their heads together, conferring in a big boardroom of sorts. And as John tells the story, amid these deliberations, a moment comes when Caiaphas, the current high priest, that is, the one chiefly responsible for balancing the Judean interests with the interests of their Roman occupiers. As John tells the story, there comes a moment when Caiaphas stands to his feet and says this, Gentlemen, gentlemen, in the end, it is better to have one man die than to have the whole nation destroyed. And if we let him go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy both our temple system and our nation. You hear that? 
In fact, the better question is, can you feel that? Can you feel the power of the system beginning to close in on Jesus? Can you feel that which the Apostle Paul later calls, quote, the powers of the air beginning to array their forces against him? I hope you can because that's precisely what's happening here. For with these words, the wheel has now been set in motion. For with these words, the entire inexorable system has now set its sight on Jesus. And that is why Mark chapter 14 begins with these words, and I quote, And so the chief priests and the elders began looking for a way to kill him. Dear family, the rest of the events of Holy Week now hinge upon this question. Why? Why is this movement suddenly underway to kill this man? Why is this humble and righteous man now on a collision course for the Roman cross, the most shameful and ignominious way of death possible? Why? Here's why. Because he'd now stood for righteousness just a bit too long. Because the powerful had now had enough of his antics. Because the status quo eventually had to be restored. Because the peace had to be secured. And had to be secured the way the systems of our fallen, broken world always secure the peace. Through might. So here then is what they do. They find Jesus. They bring him in. And they try him. And they sentence him. And they nail him to a tree. That's what they do. And then they invite anyone who ever thought that his way might prevail, anyone foolish enough to have thought that his way of humility could ever topple Jerusalem and Rome, anyone foolish enough to think that the meek really will inherit the earth, then they invite anyone foolish enough to believe any of that to come now and witness his humiliation. And so we now, on this Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years later, we now witness it too. And so let us then behold him now. Let us behold this supposed Son of God. This supposed Savior of the world. This man who would supposedly bring peace to the nations through humility rather than might. Let us behold him now as he hangs here on a Roman cross. Let us hear the taunts and the jeers of those who've nailed him here. Let us see the recognition begin to form on the faces of those who, like us, once believed in him. 
Let us see them now as they suddenly realize he is not our Savior. Let us see them now as they suddenly realize he is not the Son of God. Dear family, it is absolutely imperative that we understand that here on the cross, Jesus loses. And that here on the cross, Caesar and Caiaphas win yet again. To not understand this about this moment in time is to not understand what is happening in the moment or the significance of all that will follow it. And at this point, it would all be over. And at this point, there would be nothing left here to see. And at this point, there would be nothing left for us to talk about except for this. And follow me here because this is the moment the entire gospel begins to turn upon. In this moment, as Jesus breathes his last, one of those Roman soldiers who'd accompanied Pilate days earlier, one of those Roman soldiers who all his life had called Caesar the Son of God, one of those Roman soldiers positioned by the cross that day, positioned there so as to demonstrate the power of Rome, one of those Roman soldiers now watching the manner in which Jesus died. Knowing the mission for which he'd just given his life. Apprehending somehow the deeper power of humility. Perceiving somehow the deeper strength that is made known through self-surrender. One of these Roman soldiers, in this harrowingly dark moment, confesses now for all who can hear, surely this man, surely this man was the Son of God. I close by quoting the Apostle Paul. The power of Jesus' gospel of humility is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe and are being saved, it is the power of God. And on that day, in the face of all evidence and all reason, one Roman soldier suddenly apprehended this truth. On that day, one Roman soldier suddenly understood that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and that the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And in his confession, the Caesars of this world were stripped of their power. And in his confession, the stage was now being set for the great turn in human history. For the defining moment that we will celebrate next Sunday. 
for the moment when that humble man will climb out of the tomb and thus give the lie to the very power of death itself. But in saying that, we are getting ahead of ourselves. For it is still but Palm Sunday, not Easter. And on Palm Sunday, we, like they, can't know that yet. And so on this Palm Sunday, just as on that first Palm Sunday, we have a choice. For there are and there always are two processions we can join. One calls us daily to see the world as a place where peace comes only through might and strength and domination. The other calls us daily to see the world as a place where peace comes through righteousness and gentleness and humility. Yes, it is and it always is a tale of two processions. And on this day, as in that, it is both the best of times and it is the worst of times, depending on how we see it. And so let us choose this day which procession we would like to join. Choose us this day. As for me and my house, we will join with that Roman soldier and say aloud of this humble man, Jesus, as opposed to all other would-be kings and powers of this world, of this humble man, Jesus, we shall say, surely this man. We shall say, surely this man is the Son of God. Amen.